listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation that I had with Andrew Yang in 2015. This was before he ran for U.S. president. He was known as founder of Venture for America, which we talk about in great detail. He previously was founder of a startup company, a lawyer, and a book author. We talk mainly about Venture for America, its beginnings, what inspired him to create it, and how it places young professionals in innovative companies located in cities in need of human capital. We also touch on his first book, Smart People Should Build Things. He's since written another book, The War on Normal People, which I highly recommend. This is a great way to get to know him before he was in the public eye. Enjoy. Your CEO and founder of Venture for America. Tell us more about the organization and maybe a bit about yourself and the path that brought you there. Sure. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll start at the beginning because I think it ends up informing uh, some of the ideas behind Venture for America. And, and it might be familiar to some people who are listening uh, to this podcast. So when I graduated from Brown in the mid-90s with an economics degree, I really had very little idea of what I wanted to do. And so I went to law school, which was one of the things to do if you weren't sure what to do at that point, point in time. And I uh, found that law school clarified very little. And uh, I, you know, I, I went on to become a relatively unhappy corporate attorney at a firm here in New York. Uh, and it was around this point that I started getting a hankering to try and uh, start a company, to uh, take a risk. So I went and started an illfated.com, stargiving.com in 2000 that had its mini rise and maximum fall over the next 18 months where we, we raised about a quarter of a million dollars and got some press and then uh, the business went under. So at that point, I, I felt like, wow, entrepreneurship is super duper hard, like much harder than anything else I'd ever done. Uh, and so the question that Venture for America is trying to address is the same question I faced at that point, which is how do you develop as an entrepreneur? Like we think that there are hundreds, thousands of enterprising young people who are coming out of college each year that also have a little bit of an itch or a desire to help build something, uh, but they don't know what the first step is. Uh, so certainly when I just embarked on my own in, in my 20s trying to start a business, I found it was a bridge too far uh, and it didn't work out. I know that you went through a similar process, Miles, though your process went a little bit better than mine. <laughs> your, your company worked out just fine. Um, but uh, yeah, Everyone you know, works I, hard and people have different amounts of luck, I guess. Uh, you're you're super humble, but uh, you know I, I think that my experience is actually probably more representative in the sense that like the average 23, 24 year old trying to start a business, uh, it probably will not achieve its goals or, or work out perfectly. Uh, and so so that so I, I certainly learned the hard way. Um, but then uh, you know over the years I ended up um, becoming the CEO of a test prep company that uh, helped people do well in the test to get a business school in Manhattan GMAT. Uh, and I was I was exposed to I personally taught the analyst classes at banks and consulting firms and I encountered many young people that only reinforced in me this need to have a bridge towards uh, entrepreneurship. And so when my company was acquired in 2009, and you and I met around this time, and, and so we started Venture for America in 2011. But Venture for America is a nonprofit that recruits and trains top college graduates from around the country 
to work at startups in Detroit, Providence, Baltimore, Cleveland, New Orleans, and other U.S. cities that could use a boost. Uh, we bring in these, these recent graduates, we train them, they become fast friends with each other, uh, and then we send them to work at these companies so they can learn how a business grows and operates and hopefully help it succeed and create more jobs. Uh, and then at the end of uh, the two years, they have a set of choices. They can either stay in their companies as managers and leaders, or they can even start their own companies. And I'm happy to say uh, about 25% uh, of the fellows to date have decided to start companies uh, within the two years. So the, the goal is to really provide a bridge towards entrepreneurship uh, for young people and also get more of our talent in position to create jobs and revitalize the country. Wow, that's a big vision, revitalizing the country. Um, is that the mission of Venture for America? Well, we, we have a benchmark of helping create uh, 100,000 U.S. jobs by 2025. So that's a concrete goal. Uh, but our, our stated mission is to revitalize American cities and communities through entrepreneurship, to enable our best and brightest to create new opportunities for themselves and others, and to restore the culture of achievement to include value creation, risk and reward, and the common good. Uh, so it's certainly a very big mission, and it's got a, a few different prongs. Uh, but, uh, you know, I feel like we're making really steady progress. Our partner companies have created about a thousand additional jobs in the last two plus years. And our, our fellows have directly created through the companies they've started about 20 jobs already. So, you know, like we're, we're, uh, we're getting there and, and hopefully the curve will be um, exponential as opposed to linear. Yeah, it's a big vision. And one of the things I've been impressed in working with you so far is that you've got a growth mindset, a scale mindset to really continue growing Venture for America every year uh, to reach those big goals and, and breaking it down into pieces, um, which has been exciting to uh, to see along the way. But would you say that that the fellows, the the graduates are the customers or are the companies the customers or the, or the cities? I mean, how, how do you think about the relationships involved here? You know, I, I certainly think about the, the fellow experience as the hallmark of what we do, because these young people are putting in you know, two years of their, of their lives uh, and putting a lot of trust and confidence in us. Uh, and so the, the fellow experience really, to me, is our measuring stick uh, and, and what becomes of the fellows, uh, not just within the two years, but afterwards. Certainly, we have a number of other stakeholders, our company partners, our donors, the communities that the fellows are living and working in. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to bring a, a group of people together and you have to look those people in the eye and uh, see what, you know, what their experience has been and, and whether we as an organization have helped them reach their goals. So I'm very focused on the human element first and foremost. So how many uh, fellows have there been? How many are there currently? What, what is the sense of the numbers here? Sure. So right now we have a little over 200 fellows working in 12 cities around the country. Uh, and then this summer we'll have an additional approximately 140. So we'll be up to 340 or 350 or so uh, by this July. Uh, so that, so those are the, the fellows they're working in, in again, 12 cities in something like 140 different companies right now. And the fellows to date have started about 12 companies with a couple more on the way. So th those are some of the early returns. That's great. Any other key milestones that you remember or want to share? You know, uh, unfortunately, as a CEO, you end up staring at the, the money a lot um, because certainly one of the 
roles of the CEO is fundraiser in chief, and that's doubly true for a nonprofit. So our, our budget has grown from 200,000 in 2011 uh, to about 4.5 million this year. So that's unusual growth for a nonprofit in, in particular. Uh, and we want to keep trying to, to um, push that envelope as, as far as we can take it. Yeah, that is tremendous scale. I mean, of the nonprofits that get started, it must be a really small fraction that ever achieved that kind of growth and scale. Uh, and I, I know your vision is to do even more. Yeah, the, I think there was a stat that was both discouraging and but also super useful is that since 1970, approximately 150 nonprofits have grown to exceed 50 million in revenue. So you know it can be done, uh, but still it's 150 out of uh, literally about a million <laughs> nonprofits that have been started uh, in that time frame. Uh, so we're, we're certainly yeah, going the to- Yeah, the odds are better of, of going public, I think, as a, as a for-profit startup probably, right? When a for-profit company finds a market um, and a service that that works, um, then they can just keep on uh, growing within that, and you know, and that that can obviously take you to very um, significant heights. Whereas in the nonprofit market, even if you were to figure out your service, you know, fundraising is a whole different marketplace, uh, and there's a finite level of resources that typically gets devoted to nonprofit organizations. Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. What's a startup tech nonprofit, you ask? A startup is an organization seeking to grow that is new. Tech, meaning using software to scale with lower to zero marginal costs. And nonprofit, meaning organized as a public charity. So support innovation by seeding nonprofits leveraging technology to scale Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. So why do you decide to organize as a nonprofit? Do you ever consider a different... You know, I I, I don't recommend nonprofits. <laughs> like I, I, I joke with people that, you know, if you have a choice, uh, you know, probably best to avoid it. Uh, but it was the right move for us. You know, and I returned to our thinking in the beginning where... If you look at the stakeholders that we could have uh, charged, it seemed really unappealing and probably unworkable to ask recent college graduates, many of whom have significant educational debt, to pay an additional, uh, let's say, $20,000 in order to take on this particular challenge of you know, working at a startup in Detroit or, or New Orleans or St. Louis. So charging the individuals seemed unworkable. And then as someone who's run a company, if someone came to me and said, hey, I've got this really talented enterprising young person, uh, they want to help you grow your business, that'll be $15,000 or something like that. I would have been like, that's okay. <laughs> I don't really, you know, uh, like uh, I could find some talented person and not pay $15,000. So in terms of the who you would charge, uh, it, it seemed like there was a real disconnect. Um, also, we were heavily inspired by the success of Teach from America in terms of so both attracting and driving talented young people to an under-resourced part of the economy. And Teach for America is a 501c3 nonprofit. It's one of those very rare nonprofits that has grown to, in its case, a budget of hundreds of millions of dollars. So the thought was, look, if, uh, if we believe that the central challenge of this time is helping create more businesses and more jobs in places like Detroit and Baltimore and Cleveland, 
then we should be able to, to make it work as a nonprofit and make that case to people that want to see the, the country uh, grow economically and socially. Compelling argument, I think, uh, for why it would, it would decide to go with the nonprofit organization. Do, do you feel like it presents you other challenges aside from the fundraising side? Does it present any challenges from talent, um, you know, sort of staff, uh, staffing perspective? Well, you know, uh, you're hinting at it, Miles, and it's tough to ask people to take less money uh, year after year, which is what typically happens on the nonprofit uh, executive team or, or any of the staff, uh, because the nonprofit pay scale is lower and there is no equity that can be presented as future upside. Like if Venture of America grows to become a household name, um, the team here is not going to make a dime on that in terms of like, you know, there's no IPO awaiting Venture of America's future. So it's a real challenge in terms of talent attraction. Uh, I, though I, I will say though that uh, we've been remarkably lucky uh, uh, in terms of the caliber of the people that we've attracted. and. And you've met a lot of the team, like they're very talented. Uh, they could all be making much more money in the private sector uh, because people find our culture appealing and our mission uh, inspiring. So, so we've been very fortunate in terms of getting the type of people we've gotten. But I think a nonprofit generally will struggle to draw uh, high performance team members that, that can be sustained over the long haul on uh, systemically lower salaries. Yeah, the team is is fabulous. I've been really impressed. I'm wondering if you've received any pushback on this high growth, high scale mindset. Certainly not from the staff. I think they're inspired by that, but from others, uh, given the nonprofit structure, you know, whether that's peers or, or funders or others saying, you know, slow down or something. You know, you you can't get so much done all at once. I I think yeah, no, I I think that we've been very lucky on this front as well, where everyone who's supported Venture of America wants to see us grow. And we all think we're just scratching the surface in terms of the opportunity to have an impact in these cities and also on the talent side where, you know, we, we have these, well, this year alone, we'll have something like 1,800 people apply for these like 140 sponsors. So, so there's already like a massive surplus of demand on the talent side that if we grew, we could meet a bit more of. So... Uh, our, our supporters want us to grow. Our communities want us to grow. Our applicants certainly want us to grow. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, that we're an unusual nonprofit and our supporters are on board with the fact that we have a big mission and we need to try and uh, grow quickly to get there. So how have you done the fundraising? You've talked about how it's, it's tough and it's one of your number one jobs. How have you been successful doing it? You know, uh, first and foremost is really the fellows themselves. Uh, they, they're such incredible figures uh, that anytime a potential supporter meets one, they see themselves, they see their children. Uh, I think the, the fact that a young person would turn down money from you know, Credit Suisse, investment banking or whatnot, and then um, take a much lower level of money to try and build something in uh, a city like New Orleans or Detroit, uh, is just super compelling. And, uh, you know, these young people are um, themselves kind of leading our supporters to see what's possible. Uh, another thing is that there, there are a lot of people that want to see these cities come back. And we've been fortunate enough to be working with someone like Dan Gilbert in Detroit, who's put hundreds of millions of his own money to work trying to revitalize Detroit. Uh, and so for him, Venture for America is 
a natural philanthropic partner. And, and so he pledged 1.5 million to us, which you know is obviously unusual um, for a three-year-old nonprofit. So uh, our fundraising has been facilitated by the, the fact that our fellows are taking on a really important challenge um, and also the fact that there are people that care deeply about these cities. And I wonder how much of it has to do with the fact that successful entrepreneurs are excited about entrepreneurship and want to help other people uh, have that kind of success as well. Well, so certainly that resembles you, Miles. So, uh, <laughs> oh, certainly some of my motivation. Uh, you, know, yeah. you know, it probably resembles me. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I, I mean, I mean, I spoke about how like my first company went under, and like I saw how rough entrepreneurship was, and how, you know, you could really use a bit of a runway or support the community. Uh, but there, there are happily people like you in the country that have built important businesses that want the. Uh, you know, want to try and pave that path for um, the next generation. So you, you've you touched on and been very open about your failure at a startup. You've also had success uh, running the, the test prep company. Um, were those the experiences that prepared you to be a leader of Venture for America as a high growth organization? Or were there other important things that helped prepare you? You know, I, I think it was a real progression. Uh, and like I, I see most people's experiences like a layer cake, you know, and eventually you have all sorts of flavors that hopefully make up something tasty <laughs> and interesting. So, so for me, you know, I, I think the foundation for most everyone's their family. Like my, my family uh, gave me the sense that I could try and do something. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I, I had the benefit of, of um, some education where, you know, I, I like uh, graduated from Brown and, and Columbia Law School, and, and that gave me a sense of confidence, I think. And then the first company going under, I learned a ton. I learned a ton from uh, Manu, this entrepreneur I worked for for the next four years. I learned a lot from Zeke, who founded Manhattan GMAT. Eventually, you end up with a portfolio of experiences and some, some tools, and also a set of voices in your head. Like, you know, I could hear um, the people I'd worked with or worked for uh, I could hear them even as I was trying to develop my own judgment. So when I became the CEO of Manhattan GMAT, I was the at the time. And, you know, I, I felt like I was ready at that point. Uh, and so running that company and, and having it, um, you know, triple or quadruple in revenue um, while I, I was a CEO certainly also like gave me a lot of experience to draw on uh, that Manhattan GMAT had over 100 employees and teachers. And so there were just a lot of personalities, a lot of people. So you learn a lot from managing people. And, and that's really what most business boils down to is, is, uh, is, is that sense of um, people tick and managing an organization. So by the time uh, I started Venture for America, I, I felt pretty well prepared. Uh, but certainly that wouldn't have been the case if you just re rewound the clock, uh, you know, X years earlier. So you think that management really carries over well? I would I would suspect that would be true. So nice to hear that, a um, lot of success with the organization so far. On the other hand, is there anything you wish you'd done differently? Mistake or two, which we certainly did. <laughs> you know, leaving everything obviously very nameless. <laughs> it's like anyone listening to this is going to know, 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 know who's worked for Venture <laughs> over the years, but. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I mean, everyone's made a hiring mistake. I think like if you ask them that, like immediately like some, some names and faces pop up. Um, outside of that, uh, we've been incredibly 
fortunate. Uh, we had a wind at our backs really the entire time. I feel like the universe has been on our side. Uh, so there, there isn't much I would uh, take back aside from um, saying yes to a couple of people I shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. I mean, uh, getting the right people critical. And, it, and it's so hard to know um, the way that we do most hiring. Now, almost in every organization, people um, you know, do a few interviews. You see someone for such a sliver of time and you see only part of them. And then you're making a long-term commitment to work together. So it, it, it's amazing that, that there aren't more bad hiring decisions, I think. Um, well, you know, there, there's that aphorism. Take the best thing you can do for all, all parties is try and resolve as quickly as you can. Yeah. Do you have any other advice for folks that are thinking about starting a social venture or in the midst of it themselves? That's a great question. You know, uh, I think this is a looking at starting a social venture. I'm of two minds about it. Because on one hand, it's great just to start before you really know what you're up against. Uh, you know, you just because you don't know, you just like forge ahead and, and try and figure it out. On the other hand, I think I've really benefited immensely from having had uh, experience in, in these other contexts, particularly the private sector, before starting Venture for America. Like, I cannot imagine, like I started Venture for America when I was 36 and had been the CEO of a company that was acquired by a public company. So, you know, that I had an unusual background uh, and I cannot imagine having um, made this progress over the last several years without some of the, the relationship point. So, you know, when I, I see someone who's very, um, very much at an earlier point in their career and they're looking at it, I really am of two minds. Part of me is like, yeah, do it. And the other part's like, whoa, like you might want to <laughs> like go spend some time at like a more established company for a little while. Um, I, I think social ventures um, have an intrinsic tension that people struggle with. Well, I was talking to one of our fellows last week about the fact he was working for a double bottom line company and he saw it gravitate towards a single bottom line because they were having trouble generating revenue. And so then they just like went, went pretty hard at just trying to get money um, or else they would have gone out of business. And, uh, and there, there are people that believe it's impossible to, to accomplish, to serve two masters, to try and do that. I mean, obviously it is possible. You can see it in successful businesses, um, but it's super hard. Like in many ways, it's adding an order of difficulty to an already extraordinarily difficult process, which is trying to start a business that works. Um, so I'm not sure what advice you'd find uh, in, in that soliloquy, <laughs> aside from just knowing it's going to be very hard and, um, you know, trying to be prepared. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's been great having you on the podcast today. I know that with fellows who are spread across the country, excited about uh, startups and excited about positively impacting their communities, that there's going to be a lot of good that comes out of Venture for America. So I appreciate your passion and grateful for you sharing the story with us today. Um, my, my pleasure, Miles. Thank you for everything you do. Uh, you're, you're in his inspiration. And I also just want to give a shout out. I wrote a book called Smart People Should Build Things that talks about some of these and, and Miles makes an appearance. So if any of this seemed interesting, <laughs> um, pick it up on Amazon or, or wherever you like to buy books. Yeah, it's a fun read and it tells uh, the story of Venture for America and the, the reasons behind it to pretty well. So thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Miles. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram 
and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you are inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website. 